59 in the few Bible. There we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 12 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31. Follow along in your Bibles as I read from God's holy word. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would be the body? Where would the body be? As it were, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping and administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly, Desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Our Father, help us to discern your more excellent way. Help us this morning to have ears to hear. Help us to have minds to understand. And help us to have hearts that are willingly and lovingly love you and love others as we seek to become a church that lives united together even in our diversity. In Christ's name, amen. Michael Eric Dyson is a sociology professor at Georgetown University. He's written quite a few books on race and racial dynamics. Last year, actually probably two years ago now, he's wrote a book called Tears We Cannot Stop. He subtitles it, A Sermon to White America. 
In the introduction, he offers this heartbreaking observation. Black and white people, writes Dyson, don't merely have different experiences. We seem to occupy different universes with worldviews that are fatally opposed to one another. I believe he overstates the case a little bit, but nonetheless, I believe he is on to something. The point he is making is that divisions exist. Divisions exist between black and white based on our skin color. But those divisions go much deeper than our melanin levels. It may be geography. It may be inner city versus suburbs. It may be our socioeconomic status. Those who have versus those who have not. It may be our political ideals. Those who are leftist liberals versus those who are conservative republicans. And often, sometimes, right in the mix of it, it's our age. They have what in the city you call the old heads and the youngins. And there's a difference and division between those two. Here's the point. There are countless ways our world divides us. There are countless ways our sinful hearts divide us. Divisions are real. And sadly, they shape us more than we think. I think why Dyson is, I don't agree with everything in the book, a lot I don't, but I think what Dyson's on the point, he says, it comes down to our worldview level. What we think, what we believe, we are shaped at many times by what divides us. We occupy different universes, he says. That means different ways of thinking, different worldviews. We process things differently. We are divided by worldviews that at times are fatally opposed to one another. Here's one thing we're all united on. We are a very divided people. We are a very divided people. But here is the good news. The church, the glorious body of Christ, is the answer to all that brokenness and all that division. The church is the answer to that because in the church, we're able to hold on to our diversity and unity at the same time because of the gospel and its power. And that's only possible in the church with all the turmoil that we've seen in the last few years in our country, all the division that's only increasing. The answer, brothers and sisters, is sitting right here. It is us, by the power of the gospel, living together, diverse, different, but yet united in Christ. Our passage this morning is in the context of spiritual gifts. Paul draws our attention in that context to the unity of the church. He says there are many different gifts. He's saying there's great diversity, but they are all for one purpose, great unity. They're there for the glory of God and for the good of others. If you go back, we're not going to read it this morning. If you go back to verses 1 through 11, you see that there are diversity of gifts given by the Spirit for the purpose of our unity. And then Paul continues in this passage this morning. So as we continue to consider, again, what we've been talking about this entire series of 1 Corinthians, who are we? What is our identity? Why do we exist? And even more personally for each and every one of you, why are you here this morning? Why are you a part of Grace Chapel? 
How may you contribute to Grace Chapel? Where do you fit in? Those questions are founded upon the belief that God has brought each and every one of us together and has gifted each and every one of us together for the building up of his body. Our diverse spiritual gifts are for the glory of God, for the good of others, so that the church might be united together as one. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in verses 12 to 31, Paul focuses on the unity and the diversity of the body of Christ. His point is that the diverse body is united and we exist together for one another. So here's the main idea I want us to grasp today. We are one diverse body brought together by Christ for one another. We are one diverse body brought together by Christ for one another. So breaking that down into th three points, the first one we're going to look at is that we are one body, verses 12 to 13. Secondly, we are a diverse body in verses 14 to 20. And then lastly, we are together for one another in verses 21 to 31. The overriding point, one diverse body for one another. Let's begin by looking at how we are one body, verses 12 to 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. There is one church, one glorious body of Christ. And this is why we are, should wonder at the beauty of it. This spans centuries. It covers the entire world and includes every single man, woman, and child who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church, and this is great news for us, is far bigger than Grace Chapel. The church have brothers and sisters who have already met together and worshipped the Lord in Nigeria and China and throughout the world. And we gather together to become a part of that. And it's not just brothers and sisters who are alive today. The church spans back centuries. So we become a part of Augustine and Athanasius and Clement. We have a history, a rootedness, and there's beauty to that. We call that the universal church, and there's wonder. And we are a part of that. And there's goodness and wonder in being a part of something that's bigger than just right here, right now, this morning. But we're also, we talk about a local gathering. We are a local expression of Christ's body. Here this morning, we gather together as the body of Christ. Each one of us, one individual, but part of a larger body of Christ. Paul says we're all baptized into the body by one spirit. What does he emphasize? Look at how he emphasizes. He talks, he talks about ethnicity. He talks about socioeconomic status. First, Paul says, both Jews and Greeks. Now, we need to remember that the Jews and the Greeks at this time, they did not get along. If, if you will, it could be racism in the first century form. When Scripture is referring to Greeks, that would pretty much be anyone who's not a Jew. Specifically, the Romans at this time who had conquered them. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, the Jews and the Greeks who never got along are what? One in Christ. Slave and free, socioeconomic status, those who are never would meet are now one in Christ. So he talks about the hostility that used to exist. Those who are wealthy, those who are poor, those who have, those who have not, those who are free, those who remain slaves are all in Christ one. And let me just add a brief footnote. Slavery at this time in, in Scripture is not necessarily the same thing as chattel slavery that we have in the past that I'm going to mention a little bit later. Paul's point here is this. No matter our ethnic divisions, no matter our socioeconomic divisions, no matter our political divisions, no matter whatever division you can think that would divide us, that all is not in Christ. There is unity in Christ. And unity in Christ triumphs over any man-made unity, disunity we could think of. Anything we could come up with. And trust me, we have a long history, both in the church and outside of the church, of creating divisions. We do that in the church over theology. We do that in the church. Sometimes theology is important to divide over. Sometimes it's not. But we tend to see in the own sinfulness in our hearts and minds create divisions and what Paul is saying, there should be unity. If you believe and trust in Christ, that unites us together. We talked about in membership class, the beauty of the church is that you can go, for those who have traveled overseas, you can go and meet a brother in China who you've never met before. And the world's circumstances say you should have no relationship with him, but he's a brother. And you meet him and you share the fellowship of Christ and that changes your entire relationship with him. You have something in common now. You have a savior. You are united together in him. In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Divisions are dead in Christ. There is no division in Christ. Why are we still living as divided people? Look at the language that Paul uses. How are divisions dead? It's the blood of Christ. We were once far away, and now we are brought near. The blood of Christ is what has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. This is, brothers and sisters, where the church has the answer to all the divisions that the world has. Jesus took very different people and by his blood brings them together. And he creates in himself one new man, the body of Christ. Humanity used to be divided, but in the church formed into his body, we are now one and Christ has brought peace. We are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. When we have peace with God, when we are brought into reconciliation by the blood of Christ, it has an effect on all of our relationships. And as Paul is saying, we should 
We are now one body. We should live like it. Remarkably, Paul is not alone. I think I've mentioned this before, but it's something we should see as powerful. What is the last thing before Jesus' death that he actually prayed? Do you realize that he prayed for you? He prayed for me. John 17. Jesus prayed, verse 21, that they, and he's talking about those who had yet to believe, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me what it should be significant that Jesus's last prayer is for our unity today this morning Jesus prayed for our unity thousands of years ago and I believe he still prays for our unity if Jesus is praying for our unity what should we be praying for our unity Jesus wanted our church to be unified. He wanted the universal church, the local church, every expression of the body of Christ. He wants to be unified. Why? So that the world may believe. Our divisions keep people from Christ. Our unity is a testimony to Christ. When we are united together, diverse people as we see, but united, that brings glory to Christ and shows the gospel as being powerful. Brothers and sisters, we who believe in Christ are one body. Let us celebrate our unity. Let us strive for deeper unity. Let us pray for unity. In one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Let's live like it as the glorious body of Christ. But the great thing about being united is God doesn't flatten out our individuality. God doesn't turn us into clones. We are a diverse body. My second point, one diverse body. Look at verses 14 through 20. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This metaphor of body is significant for us to understand how we're to relate to one another because it holds the unity and the diversity together. Consider your body. You are one person, but thankfully, you don't have a bunch of eyes on where your fingers should be. Thankfully, you have toes and hands and feet. You are created with each diversity. Each of us are unique, diverse individuals, Those different parts, that diversity is what makes us, us. There's no identical, even identical twins to have different personalities and are shaped differently. In verses 14 to 19, Paul wants to make it clear that we need to be diverse. 
We need to be diverse. We should never diminish our diversity. We need to celebrate our diversity because that's what makes us unique and specially gifted by the Spirit. There's this trend in Christianity today to kind of flatten out. At the sake of unity, we're wanting to flatten out our diversity. The problem with this thinking is that when you minimize diversity, you actually end up minimizing the unity. Let me give an example. With the color of with the issues of race and ethnicity, there's a there's been teachings in the church to just be colorblind. We are all in Christ. We are not, skin color doesn't matter. We should just not worry. We should flatten out our what makes us different, and we should just all be one in Christ. Now I appreciate the drive. The goal is unity. But what do they miss? When you take away that diversity, you end up ultimately taking away the power of the gospel. Because what is more powerful than men and women and children who are different race, different ethnicity, different socioeconomic classes, different backgrounds, worshiping Christ together? What is more powerful than that, than men and women who would never cross paths in the world, gathering together to worship, united in Christ as one? Do you see the power in that? Only the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to take men and women and children from a variety of different backgrounds where the world says our worldviews should clash. They're fatally opposed together, what Michael Eric Dyson says. But Christ says they may appear to be fatally opposed, but they're united because of Christ. There's beauty in that. When we worship with people who are different from us, there is beauty and wonder, and I'm not just talking about skin color. It's beyond that. That's a very simple, practical example. See, the moment we diminish our diversity is the moment we also diminish the gospel. The moment we uphold and celebrate our diversity is the moment we lift up the power of the gospel to take very different people and unite us together. Sarah and I are very different people. If I were to make her myself and flatten what makes her her, I'd be miserable. The same way goes for the body of Christ. We need one another. If everyone is afoot, if everyone looks the same, if everyone acts the same, if everyone does the same, what good are we? We need different voices. We need diversity. There's beauty in that. So church, we need to celebrate our diversity. Because when we celebrate our diversity, then our unity is even more profound, more powerful, and I believe God is even more glorified. And behind this all, look at verse 18. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Do you grasp the significance of that? God has brought each and every one of you here this morning together. God has done this. God has brought you together. I normally don't do this, but turn around, turn around and look at one another. It's awkward. I get to see you, everyone. There is a beautiful diversity here of people. You're not looking back at a mirror and seeing yourself, thankfully. You're seeing the beauty of diversity, and God has brought each and every one of us here this morning. 
He has planned it. He has purposed it. He has arranged it. He's given us our diversity, especially the diversity of gifts, for a reason. Our backgrounds matter. The diverse voices we bring matter. What we bring to the table, to the church, matters. What is different is actually beautiful and necessary for the body of Christ. Each and every one of us who believes in the Lordship of Christ and lives for Him, you are here arranged by God, brought together into one body, diverse in all its wonder and all its beauty. Many parts working together for one purpose. So what is that purpose? My last point Verses 21 to 31, we are brought together for one another. Why does God take incredibly diverse people from a myriad of backgrounds and bring us together and unite us to him for each other? As we've talked about last few weeks, for God's glory, but for our good. God brings us together for one another. Look at verses 21. Look at verses 21 to 26 first. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Again, look at this. This parallels verse 18. But God has so composed the body... Do you see God's behind all this? He has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We are diverse. We are one. We exist together for one another. Verse 24, again, God has composed the body. He is the one who brings the body together. Consider that for a moment. We've already done a little bit. God has brought each and every one of you together to be a part of this local body. God has composed it. This is the story he is writing. This is his symphony. God is composing our unity together. Christ brings each one of us together for a purpose. We are brought together for one another. Verses 25 to 26 answers that purpose. Brought together for one another. How do we express this unity? Why has God brought us together? Verse 25, that the members may have the same care for one another. Here it is. Do you want the world to see our diverse church as one in Christ? As Jesus prayed, then what do we need to do? Care for one another. But how do we do that? How do we care for one another? Verse 26 is the answer. If one of us suffers, what should we be doing, church? Suffering. If one of us rejoices, what do we do? We rejoice together. Let me ask you this, Grace Chapel. Do you know each other well enough that you're suffering with those who suffer? 
Do you know each other well enough that you're rejoicing with those who rejoice? God has brought you together to know. I don't mean you need to know every single person of the church. I don't even know every single person here yet. But God has brought us together that when our brothers and sisters weep, we weep with them. When they rejoice, we rejoice with them. There's a story that I found as I've been reading this book, Beyond Suffering. It's a, it's a story of soul care in the African-American context during the slavery period. So as African-Americans are enslaved, how do they show care for one another? And it's remarkable. They told the story of um, Equiano, one of the slaves who at age 10 was taken from his home. His name means favored one. His uh, first name is, I'm not going to pronounce it right, Oluda, favored one. He's taken from his home at age 10, separated from his sister, carried over on the boat months in deplorable, horrendous conditions. And he describes in his account that there was a unity because men and women and children enslaved in Africa, sailing for months, bound together, dying together in the, sla in the slave ships, brought over to America. They're there. They can't speak to each other. They don't share the same languages. There are men and women and children from all kinds of different tribes. And you know what he says? And I thought this was a beautiful picture they learned, they could not talk together, but they learned to moan together. They moaned together. In such horrendous, unspeakable, disgusting circumstances, they learned to become united together. They couldn't talk. They, they didn't have things in common. Maybe they had skin color in common, but they didn't have anything else in common. And they moaned together. Grace Chapel, that's biblical. Weep with those who weep. Moan with those who moan. But rejoice with those who rejoice. Let me pause for a moment and just mention something very practical about this verse. You know our communication cards? They're in the bulletin. Jeremy mentioned them. They have a place for you to put your prayer requests on them so that your elders and deacons can pray for you. And we do pray for them. And let me just say as a side note, please pray for us to be faithful in praying for you. We want you to know that we are praying for you. But let me say this, prayer is not just the job of elders and deacons. We are thankful that you guys share those requests with us, whether your sufferings or we are thankful for those who share their joys. We would love to see more joys being shared. You're, you're free to do that. We can give praise to God for your joys. Send them our way as well. But here's my point. That is not all, only the responsibility of the elders and deacons. That is the responsibility of every one of you to be praying for your brothers and sisters who you know are suffering or who you know are rejoicing. So there's a twofold application. We are sharing both our sorrows and our joys with one another. So what does that mean? Are there people in your lives you share your burdens with? Are there people in your lives you share your joys with? We all need these people. How, this is how the church is supposed to function. 
Are there people in your lives that you can cry with, both tears of sadness and tears of joy? Secondly, are we truly praying and caring for those who actually experience sorrows and joys? It's not enough to just share with one another, oh, brother, let me tell you, because we all do this, don't we? Oh, someone just comes up to you and shares a prayer request, and what do we say? Praying for you. And what do we do? Don't pray. If someone needs your prayer, stop right there. Pray. Don't say what you're not going to do. And I'm having to constantly catch myself in this as well. Especially pastors and elders, are, they're the expected ones. We're the ones who are supposed to be praying. You're all supposed to be praying for one another. If someone shares something with you after church, take a minute and say, you know what? Can I pray with you right now? We have some people often come up front and are there to pray with you. There are opportunities to pray. It's a culture that needs to be shaped. We need to pray for one another. We're not just hearing people's joys. You know what? When's the last time we've actually celebrated an answer to prayer? If someone comes out and says, God has answered my prayer, why don't we pray about it? Give thanks to God. He's glorified in answering our prayers. But we focus on praying for the sadness and the sorrow, which we should, but rarely do we come back and give thanks. And I am the most guilty Rarely do I see God's good hands working and moving. I see all the negative. Just ask my wife. I'm the, I see the, I'm the glass, glass half full guy. or No, half empty. Sorry. She's, the, she's the always full. <laughs> but I see things negative. And I fail, what I fail to see is the glory of God working. We need to remind one another. My point is that we are here for one another. All of our diversity is to bring, come together, to be united together. So do we see how this puts God's word in practice? When we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, we are not only obeying the commands of Christ, but we're showing the world that we are one in Christ. When you weep with your brother or sister who just lost their child, you are showing the unity of the body of Christ. When you rejoice with someone who just got the job that they've been praying for for a year, you show the beauty of Christ. The power of the gospel is on display when we in our diversity show off our unity. Verses 27 to 31. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The rhetorical question is the answer is no. But verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. See, Paul turns to specific gifts that he's given to the church. Now, I don't want to disappoint you. I'm not going to really talk about spiritual gifts this morning. My point is that the gifts show off the unit, the diversity of the body of Christ, that each and every one of you are uniquely gifted, not just with your gifts, but with your talents, with your background, with your experiences, with how God has shaped you for Grace Chapel today. Each and every one of you who have been brought here by Christ, appointed by God, arranged by God. And lastly, verse 28 says, God has appointed in the church. 
Look at this theme in verse 18. God is arranged. In verse 24, God is composed. In verse 28, God is appointed. God is the sovereign architect of each local church, bringing us together in our diversity to display unity for the sake of the gospel so that his name would be lifted up. We are brought together for his glory and for one another. So what I'm getting at with this focus is that God deserves all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. He is the one who makes churches, bringing diverse people who would never cross paths in the supermarket, bringing us together, uniting us. He is the one who weaves our lives together to become the beautiful tapestry that is the body of Christ. So we, church, can weep together. We, church, can mourn together. We, church, can collectively moan together when one one aches, we ache. When one suffers, we suffer. When one rejoices, we rejoice. When one worships, we worship. We do this together for the glory of God. The sermon is basically at an end, but Paul's not finished. He doesn't stop with showing off the unity and diversity of the church for one another. He pushes forward. Notice the wonderful and beautiful phrase he ends this chapter with. And I will show you a still more excellent way. What's the next chapter, church? Love. As you all know, there's no chapter in verse divisions in Scripture. These are much later editions. Paul wasn't finished talking about spiritual gifts. Paul wasn't talk, finished talking about diversity. He comes back to it, but he stops in the midst of talking about the diversity of the church and the unity of the church and says, how is it all possible? Love never fails. And we're going to talk more about that next week. That is the more excellent way. Love. The gifts are great, but there's something even better. Pursue love. Let me briefly end with the story of love worked out in history. In 1765, John Fawcett began pastoring a small and poor Baptist church at Waynesgate in Yorkshire, England. After seven years of pastoring this small, poor church, he had a growing family, and he decided it was in their best interest to move. They packed up their belongings. They were headed out, and his wife turns to him and says, I cannot bear to leave. How can we go? Fawcett felt the same. He immediately ordered the men to unload their possessions, and they remained at that poor, small Baptist church for 54 years. Even though John Fawcett grew in popularity, he never made over $200 a year. Shortly after the day they decided to stay at Waynesgate, he wrote the hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. It's a hymn that describes the unity and depth of Christian love, a love that binds hearts together in fellowship of the Spirit. It's a picture of what the church must look like. It's a picture of the body of Christ living together, praying together, weeping together, and being joyful together. It's unity in the midst of diversity. It's being together for the sake of one another. As I conclude, listen to the words of Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. Fawcett writes, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of our spirit finds is like to that above. 
Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual words, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. From sorrow, toil, and pain, and sin we shall be free, and perfect love and oneness reign through all eternity. Father, bind us together with that love. As diverse as we are as a church, bind us together, make us one. Help us to celebrate our diversity as you have made us unique and different, but help us to celebrate our unity that you have brought us together to be one body and help our unity to be a testimony to the power of the gospel that takes sinful, broken, different people and brings us together, all together equal at the foot of the cross, united in all of our diversity, in all of our unity, together for each other. Help us to weep with those who weep. Help us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Help bind us together in love, the love that flows from your heart, Father, the love that sent your Son to die, the love that the Spirit empowers in our own hearts this morning. In Christ's wonderful, glorious, and powerful name we pray. Amen.